Thank you. Look at the book of Revelation, first chapter. Um, We are going to probably make our way through all of chapter 1. The book of Revelation is a little unique in the fact that chapter 1 is a good chapter that allows you to talk about introductory material. Uh, most of the time when you're dealing with one of the, the books of the Bible, you, you, you almost have to do introduction and then go to the text. But chapter 1 of uh, Revelation allows us to do the introductory material. Let me um, also just mention to you as you're turning there, uh, next week I will be away, but Jacob Lancaster, who is our intern from HPU, who is doing a graduate thesis at HPU on the book of Revelation, uh, will be here to talk with you about introductory material. So please be here. Um, he will continue to help you get introduced to the way we need to read the book of Revelation. And uh, part of what we're doing is helping him with his senior thesis as he finishes his last year at, H- at HPU, High Point University. So that, that's, that's on taps for next week. And then I'll be back. So, chapter 1. Chapter 1, we looked at the prologue last week. I'll reference it again this week. So chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, that's the prologue to the book. It says the revelation, again, no plural, there's only one revelation here, only one thing really being revealed here, and that's the exalted status of Jesus Christ. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place, he made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John. So you see uh, the way the transmission of the communication occurs. It's uh, from God, through Jesus, through angels, to John. Verse 2, who bore witness to the word of God, one of the favorite titles for Jesus also in the Gospel of John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. And we talked about that last week. Notice the word saw. We talked about apocalyptic literature, how you need to read apocalyptic literature differently. We're not really used to reading apocalyptic literature in our culture. It was a style of literature that was very popular from about... 250 years before Jesus to about 200 years after Jesus. Uh, We have lots and lots of examples of apocalyptic literature. That's why we know what these symbols generally stand for in apocalyptic literature. Uh, And with apocalyptic literature, you're given a series of visions. So you don't need to analyze what John says as much as see what John says. Try to visualize what John says. Um, So this John bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Jesus gives this vision to John. He he sees, and John bears witness. And then comes one of the Beatitudes, the first Beatitude. Uh, A Beatitude is a statement of blessing. We think about the Beatitudes at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, particularly in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 5. But there are Beatitudes throughout the Bible. These are just statements of blessing. Here's one that comes at the beginning of the book of Revelation. Blessed blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. Just a couple things about this beatitude. Um, 
I mentioned last week that there are several Beatitudes scattered throughout the book of Revelation. How many Beatitudes are in the book of Revelation? Seven. You can almost always answer seven, and you're probably going to be right when you're talking about the book of Revelation. There are seven Beatitudes scattered throughout the book of Revelation. Uh, So here's the first one. Uh, Notice it says, Blessed is the one who reads aloud, aloud the words of this prophecy. There were no books in the first century. Uh, We Christians probably invented what we know of as books. A little bit later from John's time. In the first century, you have scrolls. Don't ever envision these people having a book. They have scrolls. Scrolls were very, very, very expensive. Um, Like, for instance, if you were a synagogue, you would have one set of Torah scrolls, Old Testament first five books of the Bible, scrolls. And the value of that Torah scroll would be about the value of a person's home. So you'd have like one scroll in the the synagogue. When letters were written, a letter would be written to a community, and that letter would be read. We know this from all of Paul's letters. That letter would be read to a congregation. Um, It was read because it's just the one copy there. It was also read because most people were not literate. In the first century, uh, a lot of the literacy, a lot of the production of books comes after the uh, invention of the printing press in the 15th century. At this point, uh, the letter goes to churches, and his churches you'll see in the book of Revelation. Someone in the church gathering, when I say church, first century, don't think of a building like we're in right now. Basically, they were home churches in the first century. It's just the church is the people. It's the gathering of the people probably in a home. Somebody would perhaps have a home a little bit larger than other homes, and they would gather there. That would be the church in Ephesus, the church in Laodicea, etc. So you gather there. Someone would read the text that was sent to them. This beatitude says that person is blessed. And notice it says the people who hear... The congregation, they will be blessed for hearing. But notice the beatitude ends by saying, not only are those people blessed, but also, and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. So just hearing it is not enough. You've got to hear it and you've got to obey it. That's what it means to keep it. You can't just hear the word and learn the word because you want to be informed, you know, so that you can do well at Bible trivia or something. You want to allow it to change your lives. It's all, you're almost in a dangerous spot if you're hearing the Word of God and not listening to the Word of God. If you're hearing the Word of God, not keeping it or obeying it. So notice the beatitude here. You're blessed if you, to the person who reads it, the people who hear it, and, and those who hear it and keep it. And then notice it ends up, we talked about this last week, for the time is near. You are frequently told throughout the book of Revelation, particularly at the beginning, what what is getting ready to be revealed had some application to John in the first century. So something is about to happen in John's world. And I know we talked about this at length last week. One of the modern, I almost want to perhaps not use the word heresy, but maybe I want to use the word heresy. One of the modern heresies is to take the book of Revelation and do something we don't do with any of the other books of the Bible. We take the book of Revelation and make it only about our age. 
Make it about something that's going to come to pass in our future, maybe our life or our future. Now, all the books of the Bible obviously have application for all Christians of all ages. We, I think, all agree on that. But what you have to help people understand the book of Revelation, this also had application to John. It had application to the churches uh, to whom John wrote this letter and sent this. It had application in that day. Uh, Just like you do with every other book of the Bible, make sure you understand what it meant to John, to those people in that day. Get a handle on that. And then build a bridge to how you apply it in your life. Uh, But a lot of people use the book of Revelation. They just apply it to our future and make it totally irrelevant to the first century, make it totally irrelevant to John and the churches that read this to to begin with. Um, But John says in the Revelation, the time is near. More than once he says that. So something is being revealed that's going to happen soon. Uh, I mentioned last week, just a little bit more review, uh, for the theological nerds in the room, I know I have some, I'm a moderate preterist, if you know what that means, That's good. If you don't, don't worry about it. I'm a moderate preterist, a moderate futurist. I'm a historical contemporary interpreter of the book of Revelation um, who really looks strongly for spiritual principles from the book of Revelation that that strongly teach us about uh, a Christian philosophy of history through the whole age. I believe the book of Revelation points over and over to us um, about the first advent and what will occur between the first advent and the second advent. I think there may be seven recapitulations of visions that show what we are to expect from first advent to second advent. It's not all about just what happens at the second advent, uh, the second coming of Jesus. Um, Anyway, if you're a theological nerd, that probably meant more to you. If you're not a theological nerd, don't worry about what I just said. Just make sure you allow this to apply to John and John's day and make it applicable to us in our day, like you do the rest of the Bible. So look at verse 4. New territory. John is really continuing on with his greeting. Uh, There's a pretty extensive greeting here. And then you can get the first vision. And hopefully we'll get through all this today. Verse 4. John to the seven churches that are in Asia. Um... Asia does not mean what you think Asia means. Uh, Asia means Asia Minor, the Roman province of Asia uh, in the first century, which is modern-day Turkey. Uh, So he's writing to seven churches. He's going to tell you what seven they are. And he's going to give you even a little more extensive letters to them in chapters 2 and 3. He's writing to seven churches in, um, in Asia Minor, in what would be today western Turkey. Uh, part of the Roman Empire. He's writing to these seven churches. Now, again, there's the word seven. Do you think he wants only those seven churches and no one else to read this? Obviously not. We're reading it today. And there's examples throughout the whole book that makes it obvious. He wants everybody to read this. Even when you're in chapters 2 and 3 where he's addressing specifically those seven churches, at the end of his addresses to those seven churches, he will say something like, let him who has ears hear what the Spirit's saying to the churches. So he's going to say over and over, this is really for everybody. 
which he's already told you that in the Beatitude. This is for everybody. So when he writes to seven churches, not six, not eight, why do you think he's writing to seven? What might that symbolize? Complete. Yeah, that's on your cheat sheet. Seven always means complete or perfection. So he's writing to seven churches. He's writing to the complete church. So he's writing to the folks sitting here today in Weston Memorial Church too. This is, this is written to the whole church. Again, seven means complete. It means perfect. Not just those seven. And therefore, we don't have to pay any attention to this. It's obvious we need to pay attention to this too. But it says he's writing to these seven churches that are in Asia. Asia Minor, Roman province. Grace to you and peace from him. This is your typical New Testament greeting. Paul uses it. Peter uses it. Uh, What I think significant here is it says grace to you and peace. Grace is a, um, both of these are Christian and Jewish concepts. Grace, charis, is definitely a Christian concept. We talk a lot about grace in the Christian church. Um, Peace. It's a Jewish and Christian concept, but particularly in the Jewish world, peace as shalom. To this day, if you go to Israel, that's still the greeting they use on the street to each other, shalom. So you've got sort of a, a linking together here of uh, the Christian grace, the Jewish peace. It's, don't, don't separate those. It comes as a package deal like Judaism and Christianity sort of comes as a package deal. Uh, this is the standard greeting in the New Testament that sort of links both Testaments. Uh, notice also, though, which comes first. What's first, grace or peace? Grace. grace. Um, not to make too much of it, but I think the New Testament consistently teaches that you won't have peace to experience the grace. That's why I think they're consistent. They never say peace and grace. You've got to experience the grace that brings you into relationship with God, that helps you become an adopted child of God. That grace, which is God's empowering presence in your life. That's my definition for grace. Uh, That's God operating in your life. You, You experience that, and then you'll experience peace. If you try to jump over that and just go after the peace, it it won't happen. So that's your standard New Testament greeting. Grace to you and peace. Notice the Trinity here. Uh, The incipient Trinity. Grace to you and peace from Him who is and who was and who is to come. That should take your mind back to like the book of Exodus, God revealing God's name to Moses, where God says, I'm Yahweh, I am, I am. I am um, the verb to be. That's what's revealed at the burning bush to Moses. That's the name of God. He's, he's, he's the verb to be. Well, here it, it, it morphs into who is and who was and who is to come. Uh, the reason also that I say this, we say this for 2,000 years, this is, is incipient beginning Trinitarianism. We know that's probably God the Father because you look at the next two. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne... You know, there are a few commentators that will say there, this really means seven different spirits. Some people will say, I think, a little more wisely, because you di- remember the genre of literature you're dealing with. Again, what does seven mean? Perfection or complete. So it's the perfect or complete spirits, spirit, Holy Spirit. Or, if you want to be really Old Testament or Jewish and Christian, in Isaiah chapter 11, there's a text at the beginning of chapter 11 of Isaiah where we have gleaned from that text what we call the sevenfold attributes of the Spirit. 
So it is a Holy Spirit with sevenfold attributes. You can go back to Isaiah 11 and see what those sevenfold attributes are. But uh, so it's the Spirit, the Holy Spirit with seven attributes, the complete perfect Spirit. Almost consistently in Christian interpretation, this is the Holy Spirit. Again, you've seen God the Father, you've seen now Holy Spirit, the seven spirits are before the throne. So you're not surprised who then occurs in verse 5, are you? And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of the kings on earth. So there's, there's some incipient Trinitarianism. The church has seen it for 2,000 years. You know, the word Trinity is not in the New Testament, but that doesn't mean we made it up. Uh, there's basis for it. Uh, so you, we, we see it in places such as this. And for a Jew to sort of muddle this image of the divine is pretty remarkable. To kind of muddle the Spirit and Jesus Christ with Him who is and who was and who is to come. So this is where we begin seeing a, a, a more pronounced doctrine that's going to eventually be termed the doctrine of the Trinity. Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, He is the true expression of God. Firstborn of the dead. He is the first one to come back from the dead to not die again. He's the first one to come back from the dead. He's the firstborn. We will follow suit at some point. We'll be the secondborn, thirdborn, fifthborn, hundredthborn. So he's firstborn. He's the first in a line of people being raised from the dead to die no more. And, of course, he's the ruler of the kings of the earth. And that takes us again back to all the introductory material last week about John's world. John is in a world that's rapidly becoming more and more um, immersed in emperor worship, state worship. Um, you know, Rome, love it or leave it, whatever Rome asks, you've got to do. That sort of state worship. Uh, the goddess Roma is the goddess of Rome. And you showed your patriotism by at least once a year sort of offering incense to the emperor in worship or offering incense to the goddess Roma as you were offering incense to a whole lot of other gods. Uh, obviously, that was very problematic for Christians. We refused to do it. You know, we, we, we don't have more than one god like a lot of the people in the ancient world did. Uh, we only have one, and uh, that creates a whole lot of other issues for us, but we only have one god. Um, so again, part of what I say the book of Revelation is about is to make sure that the church in John's age and in our age remembers that things are not as they seem. It seemed to John like Domitian, uh, the Roman emperor in Domitian in John's day, the Roman emperor who printed coins declaring himself to be Lord and God, the Roman emperor who printed coins that showed his son holding the seven stars. You'll see that in a minute elsewhere. Uh, but Domitian was very clear. He didn't want you to wait till he died to offer emperor worship. Some emperors early on did. But then emperors began saying, that's a pretty good idea. Why don't we just go ahead and start it now before I die? And again, in a polytheistic world where you have multitudes of gods, it's very easy to, to add another one. So the whole ancient world was, was adding the emperor as a deity. Uh, and what you have happening in the book is not so much full-blown persecution at this point. Um, there's only one person 
martyred and named to us, Antipas and Pergamum. Uh, you'll see some martyrs under the altar in heaven in chapter 7. So some people are dying for their faith. But um, we know that it's coming because of the pressure, the social pressure being exerted on the Christians in the first century, the social pressure to be good patriots in the Roman Empire and to do things that Christians couldn't do. So John and the, everybody else, I'm sure, also realized that um, you know the pressure was coming. So part of, part of what the book of Revelation is about is to try to tell the church, you're going to see this issue particularly in chapters 2 and 3 and the rest, be careful about accommodating. You've got, to, you've got to do that struggle every day. Where do I not accommodate to the culture around me? Where can I accommodate to the culture around me? Where can I accommodate to the culture around me and not betray my, my God? Uh, you know, the Christians had to work on that. Um, you're going to see in a moment John is imprisoned because of his faith as he receives these visions. So I'm sure most of the world in John's day, if you'd said, who is the, who is the ruler? They would have said, Who? Domitian, the emperor. It was very clear he was a ruler, and they could never forget that in the Roman Empire. Uh, that symbol was everywhere that the, the ruler uh, was, was the Roman emperor. So that's why Jesus referred to his faithful witness, firstborn of the dead, and the, and the ruler, the ruler of the kings of the earth. So things are not as they seem. You know, there may be people on thrones here on this earth, but that doesn't mean they're really the one on the throne. Remember I said another way of saying what is the prevailing theme in Revelation is just answer that question. Who's on the throne? The word throne occurs over and over and over in the book of Revelation. And then when you get to those wonderful visions in chapters 4 and 5, you're shown clearly who's on the throne. And it's not Domitian or any other human being you may want to put there. So anyway, he, he continues his doxology. And of course, doxology is his song of praise. He continues it in the second part of verse 5. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. Uh, it may say washed us. It may say freed us. It may say loosed us. The word there in the Greek, when you read it, sounds the same for all three of those. And that's why we're, we're willing to give you some wiggle room. We don't know if the original said washed or freed. Uh, most of us, now that we've looked at that over the years, we thought um, it's probably both. Because I hope you know how God washes you of your sins. We talk about that. God washes you of your sins. Uh, but I hope you also understand that the Bible teaches that, that Jesus can loose you of those sins. He doesn't just forgive you, he can free you from them. So whichever one you want to choose, uh, both work. He's washed us of our sins and he's freed us from our sins by his blood. So real quickly you have the image of blood being brought to the forefront. Uh, because again, this church is going to start shedding more and more blood as time passes. And made us a kingdom of priests to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. That's the doxology. We're a kingdom of priests. That was the same promise that's given to the children of Israel there at Mount Sinai in Exodus 19. Remember, I think I told you last week there are 400 illusions. Illusions. 
uh, to the Hebrew Bible, to the Old Testament in the book of Revelation. So th- this John obviously knows the Old Testament well. Um, this is one of them. This goes straight back to the book of Exodus. And then, as a matter of fact... He, he sort of continues to hang out in Exodus for a while. After he finishes the doxology, uh, he gives you maybe another thematic statement for the book. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all tribes of the earth will well on account of him. Even so, amen. For your homework, go and read Zechariah chapter 12, verses 10 and following. That's where this is being pulled from. Say again. Zechariah. Zechariah. Z-E-C-H. Put a dot there and you've got the abbreviation for Zechariah. Zechariah chapter 12, verses 10 and following. Um, this is an allusion to that text where it says that uh, he's going to be coming. He's going to be coming on the clouds. That may be from Daniel, actually, chapter 7 of Daniel. But this thing about every eye seeing him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him, that's pretty much coming from Zechariah. Um, so what he's saying here is he's coming. Now, coming can mean several different things in the, in the, in the, in the Hebrew Bible. You know, think about even how we use the word he is coming uh, in the Battle Hymn of the Republic. You know, the, the, the person who wrote the Battle Hymn of the Republic uh, wrote that as a hymn, um, an abolitionist hymn, to talk about how the war was a coming of Christ to eradicate the United States of slavery. That was a coming, a showing up of God. So coming can mean more things than once than one. Um, this is a coming. Notice though it's a coming with or in the clouds. Again, if you know your Old Testament, go, just go back to Exodus 19. Clouds always symbolize the power and the presence and the glory of God. Uh, you know, the clouds surrounded what Moses was listening to on Mount Sinai. When Jesus was transfigured on Mount Hermon, he was engulfed in a cloud, remember? So the cloud symbolizes power and presence and glory. It symbolizes the power and presence and glory of, God's, of God being in the midst of his people like at Sinai. So here it says Jesus is coming with the clouds and power, presence, and glory. Everybody's going to see him. Uh, there was a group about 150 years ago who used to talk about the coming of Christ was going to be a secret coming. Don't know how this is. Not, this doesn't look the least bit secret to me. It's going to even look less and less secret as you go along. Um, so this coming of Jesus, whether it's coming to save His people in John's day, coming to save us today. Remember, more people were martyred, died for their faith in Christ in the 20th century than any other history in Christianity. We're all over the world now, but it makes it easier for more people to die for their faith. But, uh, you know, people continue to die for their faith. I did a wedding recently of of two Christians from Sudan. And, of course, Sudan's had to split um, because of the civil war between Muslims and Christians. Uh, These were two Christians that, that lived through that, made their way here. One of them, the groom, was actually one of the lost boys of Sudan. Both his parents were killed for their Christian faith and because of the political situation there. And he had to walk 100 miles, hundreds of miles, to get to Ethiopia to refugee camp. Her parents were imprisoned, but they survived. So, you know, sometimes we think, you know, the world's like us. 
There are people all over the world who are suffering on a daily basis for their faith in Christ. That are not getting out of any tribulation. They're living through it right now as we sit here comfortably in high point. Um, so this, this book is a promise that somehow Jesus is going to prevail. And then the rest of the book it may be a, a commentary on how Jesus prevails. But you'll see Jesus prevailing. Okay, let's move on to because we keep, a lot of this stuff we'll keep coming back to. There's there, there's repetition in the book of Revelation. Like I told you, I think there's seven repetitions in the book of Revelation. Seven recapitulations of of, of Christian history from first advent to second advent. But look at verse eight. Verse eight is significant. I am the Alpha and the Omega. And you know what that is. That's the first layer and the last layer of the Greek alphabet. So somebody's talking here. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Um, that doesn't surprise you. This is God speaking. Lord God Almighty. Notice the titles there. Says the Lord God. Then you get a little more of the phrase Almighty. Now what is what I want you to note here is this. Here, God, very clearly, Lord God Almighty. Lord God Almighty, Pantocrator is what it says in the Greek, Almighty, Pantocrator, Lord God Almighty. Um, particularly the people that are receiving the book of Revelation need to hear that our Lord, our God is Almighty. Okay, here it comes. Guess how many times in this book he's called the Lord God Almighty? You catch on fast. It is a portrayal that our God, not Domitian, and I could keep naming politicians, they're not our God, they're not our Lord, they can only do so much to us. You know, God is the Lord God Almighty. And that is a, a, a popular phrase to the author of Revelation. But here the Lord God Almighty says, I'm Alpha and Omega, who is and who was and who is to come, which you've already heard. Okay. That Alpha and Omega, by the way, comes from the book of Isaiah, where God says it there. God is going to say that again in chapter 21. Then you're going to get to chapter 22, and we'll be there in several months. You'll get to chapter 22. Guess who's going to say it clearly in chapter 22? Jesus. Yeah. Again, this is a Jewish mindset. For God to say, I'm Alpha and Omega, that, they get that. But for somebody, anybody else... To say, by the way, I'm Alpha and Omega too. If I said that, you need to lock me up somewhere. <laughs> Jesus says it though. He's, he declares it at the end of the book. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. Again, the incipient Trinitarianism. You see Jesus being absorbed into the divine in the book of Revelation. We've got a lot of times to talk about that. Anyway, here comes, the first, here comes almost the first vision. So the visions are fun. Um, again, don't worry about analyzing it as much as just try to see it and try to feel it and try to get the message. But before he gives you the vision, he's going to give you just a little bit more of introduction. I, John, again, we talked a little bit about that last week. Who is this John? Is John. You know, maybe if you want it to be the uh, gospel writer, the earliest church certainly did, and there have still been people throughout history. But if you just look at the text, what you learn about this John is a John that was well-known in Asia Minor among these seven churches. By the way, there were ten churches in Asia Minor. But among these seven churches in Asia Minor, this John was well-known. He's obviously a, a Jewish Christian. He knows the Hebrew Bible well. He... Um, He's writing in the era of Domitian, probably. Uh, he's going to tell you he's imprisoned. 
Uh, he's going to uh, tell you he's a prophet. Four times he's going to tell you he's a prophet. That, that, that's enough to know about this John. It, is it John the Apostle? Maybe, maybe not. So what a lot of us have done throughout the years of history, we just say John the Divine, John the Revelator, if you want. You know, when you get to heaven, you may find out exactly who this John is. But it's obviously a well-known John. And the tradition of the church is that John, the apostle, the one who Jesus gave his mama to at the cross, ends up in Ephesus and dies in Ephesus. You know, go to Ephesus today, they will show you the home. They'll show you the home uh, that John lived in where Mary died. Um, I don't know about that, but it is well attested in quite a bit of Christian antiquity that Ephesus was seen to be the place where John ended up at. Um, And you're going to see here, Ephesus seems to have a pretty strong connection to this John. But anyway, if you just go with the text, we we learn all we need to know about John. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus. So you got tribulation. You know he's experiencing that because he can't tell you he's in prison. He's in the kingdom. Again, the kingdom for Christians, this is basic New Testament theology, is not something future only. It's something that's future and present. Whenever we see God at work around us now, whenever we see God's kingdom or God's influence, God's reign extending now. So the kingdom, we all have always said for a long time, the kingdom is both now and yet to be. It's both. So, you know, when he's in the presence of God, in the presence of Jesus Christ, experiencing the fullness of the Spirit, which you'll see he's doing right now, he's in the kingdom, he's in tribulation. If you add tribulation to kingdom or the reality of God, guess what you get? You get patient endurance. If you want to translate that perseverance, the Greek word is hupomone. You know, patient endurance, the ability to hang in there. And I told you last week, guess how many numbers of times hupomone, perseverance, occurs as a word in the book of Revelation? Seven. Seven. So here's John saying, I, I know tribulation, he's been in prison on a penal colony, on an island. He's, he's experiencing the kingdom, the reality of God. And therefore, he's, he's experiencing perseverance, patient endurance that, that are in Jesus. Was on the island called Patmos. That's an island about 35 or so miles off the coast of Ephesus, Asia Minor. We know it to be a penal colony. The Romans imprisoned people there. He's there on Patmos. That's about, I think, the only biblical spot I've not been to. Because it's really hard to get to Patmos these days. The monks there just got tired of the tourism. Or tired of the pilgrims, I should say. And the monks are very protective of Patmos. I've never been to Patmos. Most all these other places in the gospel and here in Revelation I've been to. But Patmos I've not. That's where John was. He's, he's in the penal colony of Patmos. He's there on account of the word of God. Again, a good title for Jesus. Or the express, expression of God in Jesus. And the testimony of Jesus. He's been bearing testimony to Jesus. He's got in prison. Verse 10, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. That's really important to those of us, I think all of us in this room, for a couple of reasons. One, he's in the Spirit. You know, that may mean a lot of different things, a lot of different Christians. But he's in the Spirit. You know, I don't know if it's a full-fledged trance. I don't know if he's in the Spirit like Methodists can get in when they sing Blessed Assurance. You know, in some, somewhere on that continuum, he's in the Spirit. Um, but notice he's in the Spirit on the Lord's day. 
This is one of two occasions in the New Testament where a particular day is called the Lord's Day. And it's almost universal. Because, I mean, the one way to look at this is, is say somehow he's been, tra- and there are people who do this, he's been transported way into the future to the day of the Lord that the prophets in the Old Testament look forward to. It's probably not what's being meant here. Because the Christians had a particular day by the end of the first century they were calling the Lord's Day. What is the Lord's Day for us? Yeah, we, we noticed that we moved our worship day from the seventh day of the week to the first day of the week. We, we noticed that. You know, when they knock on your door and tell you it didn't happen to about the third century and the Roman emperors made us do it, I just say you know better. It's, it's happening in the New Testament. You see evidence in Acts, 1 Corinthians, and here. What was happening was um, early on, we were when we were just Jewish Christians, we probably kept the Jewish Sabbath, which is the seventh day of the week. But I think from the beginning, we, we, we paid attention to the first day of the week because that's the day our Lord was resurrected on. So we, you know, that kind of sounds like a good deal to me. I'll worship both days. And I think that's probably what was happening early on. Uh, but by this point, by the end of the first century, we were beginning less and less Jewish Christian John's probably a Jewish Christian originating in Jerusalem. But by the end of the first century, Christianity, thanks to people like Paul, has gone all over the, the ancient Roman world. And any Sabbath observance, seventh day of the week, has faded away. But we're still there with Lord's Day worship. So, you know, if somebody tells you that you're, when you come to church on Sunday, you're coming on the wrong day... We see evidence of it in the New Testament. We reverence Sunday quickly, first day of the week. We reverence the first day of the week. Sunday's first day of the week. We know that the seventh day of the week is a Jewish Sabbath. Sunday's first day of the week. So we were calling it the Lord's Day. There was the Jewish Sabbath, and there was the Lord's Day. Um, So he was on what we would have already called the Lord's Day on on, um, at the end of the first century. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. And notice this. Now, again, if you're going to analyze this like you analyze historical prose, if you're going to read this like you're reading the manual to your coffee maker, it's going to drive you absolutely crazy. It's not meant to be read that way. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day, and I heard behind me a voice like a trumpet. By the way, that's shofar. Don't think the metallic trumpet that we in Europe invented. It's the Jewish shofar is what he's talking about here. Uh, I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet. Again, this is not a secret event. A loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write what you see see in a book and send it to the seven churches to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. I've been to all those ruins. Um, And then you can, um, those are the seven churches. We're going to see more of them in chapter 2 and 3. Then verse 12, then I turned to see the voice. Yeah, if you're going to try to read this like you read the manual to your coffee maker, it's going to drive you crazy. How do you see a voice? You may see the person speaking, or you may see the person creating the voice, but here he turns to see the voice. This is a type of literature we have to work on how, how we read it. Then John says, I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And, and on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. He's going to tell you in a minute, these lampstands are the seven churches. He's going to just go ahead and tell you that one. Um, 
is sort of interesting in the temple, which is sort of lurking in the background of this text. In the Jewish temple in Jerusalem, there was a menorah, a seven-branched menorah. It almost appears now there's seven separate, um, seven separate lampstands. Um, you can make of that what you want. Uh, if you read in King James and it says candlesticks, you need to understand we didn't invent candles to the late Middle Ages. That's why no modern translation says candlesticks, because John would have had no clue what a candlestick was. But he knew what a lampstand was, you know, because you put your little oil lamp on top of it. He knew what a lampstand was. Then he turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning he saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, now again he's going to tell you the lampstands were the churches. So he's going to see someone in the midst of the churches. This should bring great comfort to persecuted Christians, to suffering Christians. It should bring great comfort to us. There's days I have to remind myself Jesus is still in the middle of the lampstands because there's days I'm not sure. But the promise is Jesus is in the middle of the lampstands. So he turns, he sees these seven golden lampstands, which he's going to tell you the churches. In the midst of the lampstands is one like the Son of Man, comes from Daniel chapter 7. One like the Son of Man. We can talk more about that later. At this point, it may just mean one kind of like a human being. That's not all that Son of Man means, but it may here. But notice this image. Clothed with a long robe and a golden sash around his chest, the hairs of his head were white. I really like that, by the way. <laughs> white symbolizes um, wisdom. In the biblical literature, all this stuff symbolizes something. His head, the hairs on his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. He has piercing eyes. He can see. He sees all. His feet were like burnished bronze. He's solid. He's, he's secure. His feet like burnished bronze. Refined in a furnace. His voice was like the roar of many waters. Um, just a loud sound. Keep in mind, he's on an island in the GNC. And he's hearing the waves crash against the shore. This voice of this person. We, by the way, this is Jesus, if you haven't figured it out. This is an image of Jesus standing in the middle of his churches. Uh, his voice is loud like many waters. His, the word has power. The word of Jesus has power. In his right hand, he held the seven stars. We're so grateful for that. In his right hand, his hand of authority. You know, Jesus is seated to the right hand of the Father. We say in the creed, that means he has authority, God's authority. Well, I'm really grateful that Jesus is the right hand of the Father, and we're in Jesus' right hand. Uh, so he says we're, in, we're in, in his right hand. There were the seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. That comes straight from other places in the Bible. It's, that is said exactly in Hebrews Chapter 5, I think it is. Uh, God's word like a two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. So here's this amazing image of Jesus. Now, we'll, we'll talk more about some of these symbols, but it's obvious to most of us reading this, Jesus is being presented, and this gets in Christian tradition, and we use it for the last 2,000 years. We know Jesus is prophet, priest, and king. We talk about Jesus being prophet, priest, and king. You sing some Christmas carols that talks about Jesus being prophet, priest, and king. He's dressed here like a prophet, priest, and king. He's, he's like a royal priest here. He's wearing some priestly garb, some royal garb, um, some prophetic garb. Uh, we, we'll, we can talk more about this, but just get the image of this powerful Christ who is in the middle of the lampstands. 
I mean, that should bring that should bring suffering Christians a great deal of of comfort. Anyway, we we'll have more time to deal with those kind of images, but just just feel just feel that that exalted image of Jesus as prophet, priest, and king in the middle of his churches, in the midst of his churches. Verse 17, we'll wrap it up. When I saw him, John had a completely appropriate response. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me. This is the exalted Christ. He lays his right hand on John and says, Fear not. And I'm sure you've heard some preacher along the way say there are 365 statements in the Bible of fear not, one for every day of the year. I've not counted. I know there's a bunch of them in the Bible. God and then Christ is always saying, fear not, do not be afraid. He says it to John. Fear not, I am the first and the last. So here he's pretty much intimating Alpha and Omega. This is Jesus saying the same thing you just heard God say a few verses ago. Fear not, I'm the Alpha and the first and the last and the living one. I mean, our Jesus is not a dead person in history. I mean, what makes us the church is we believe Jesus is in our midst. He is the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. I have the keys of hell and death. That means he has authority over hell and death. For those of you that spend, some of you spend as much time at funerals as I do, you'll notice if you go to United Methodist funerals, at the United Methodist liturgy for funeral, this is in the opening statement that we make. Though our opening statements are, Jesus says, I'm the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, even though he died, will not perish, will live forever. And Jesus says, behold, I hold the keys of death and hell. It's the way it's in our liturgy. Here it's Hades. Hades is the place of the dead. Hell really is more the final place of the wicked, if you kind of look at the way it kind of works itself out in Christian history. But here this Jesus, he says he has the key. Just like if I give you keys of the... Well, I can't give you keys of the city. If, uh, if, uh, if, if Mr. Wagner gave you keys of the city, that would mean that you have some authority in this city. Um, to have keys of death and hell. This Jesus saying he has some authority over death and hell. John, appreciate hearing that. Write these things that you have what? Seen. These are visions. Those that are, and here maybe comes a whole outline of the book. Those things, write these things you've seen. Those that are, those things right now. Those things, John, you're experiencing. And those that are to take place after this. Those things that are going to take place... I think soon after this, but maybe throughout the ages after this. Some of this applies to John's day. Some applies maybe beyond John's day. Um, so it's the entire future, I think, spelled out there. It's kind of Christian philosophy for history. Um, verse 20, as for the mystery, I'm glad that word's there. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. And the seven lampstands are the seven churches. I wish John would just, or I wish Jesus through John would just done more of this and just tell us what the symbols are. But most of the time we know. So the seven stars in the seven lampstands, seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. Um, you read the commentaries, you get a few choices there. Uh, angels can mean angels because there is an idea in Judaism and then it becomes in Christianity just like how human beings have guardian angels, nations have guardian angels. Again, go back to uh, Daniel chapter 10. You'll see Michael being summoned to come to the aid of Israel because Michael was the angel 
the kind of had charge of Israel. So there is a sense in, in, in antiquity that people and groups had angels, had like guardian angels. So the angels of the churches, usually when that's... Because the word, what's the word angel just mean literally? Messenger. So when you look at this, I mean, the choices usually given to you are angels, you know, the angels, the guardians of the particular churches, or the messengers of the churches, maybe the, maybe the pastors, the bishops, the pastors of the churches. Um, some people say maybe it's the ethos of the church, uh, whatever. Uh, like my one of my mentors, Mickey Eford, says, who, by the way, will start teaching here on Monday night, four nights, coming to teach Gospel of John, four consecutive Monday nights, beginning this coming Monday. Like my mentor, Mickey Eford, would say, sometimes you have to pay your money and take your choice. I don't know if it's the pastors, their guardian angels, or the ethos of their church. But um, anyway, we, we know where they are. But we know the seven lampstands are the seven churches. I like the image of the lampstand for the church. We are those who are supposed to bear light to the world. Jesus said you're to be the light of the world. One of the things that you'll see in the book of Revelations, we get in chapters 2 and 3, if you don't function and live as the church, Jesus will take away your lamp. Jesus will take away your light. And um, that's an issue. It's kind of like a lot of churches I say, I've said frequently from pulpit. You know, I, I, you know, renewal happens when we bring the fireplace and the fire together. You know, some churches have the fireplace, the tradition, the heritage, the structure. That's the fireplace. Some churches have fire and no fireplace. You know, we don't really want wildfire. That's not always beneficial. But in the history of the church, renewal, revival happens when you appreciate and have the fireplace, but get the fire in it. What we have now, we have a lot of churches that are just empty fireplaces. And we got the fire in other places, I think. But if you can put the fire in the fireplace, you just like to put the, the lamp and the lamp stand together, you've got something. I think, you know, this, you're going to hear the warning here that Jesus can take your lamp away from your lampstand. I guess at that point you cease to be a lampstand. You certainly cease to be a church. Um, you just become a piece of furniture. Okay, good. Meet each other. Make sure you know each other. Um, go in peace. Thank you.